0: You're now listening to the Live Different Podcast with Matt Wilson. What's up, guys? It's Matt coming to you from Costa Rica with another episode of the Live Different Podcast today with Dr. Anne Shippey. I am extremely excited about this episode because she is both a functional medicine doctor and an allopathic or Western medicine doctor, internist, an MD. So she is not just spouting off all sorts of natural remedies like you can get when you talk to someone who is strictly focused on functional and uh, naturopathy, but she really understands Western medicine as well. And I really believe in the combination of these two things. If you can treat something naturally. If you can live your lifestyle in the most natural way possible, I really think that is the most healthy. But with science and technology, it's incredibly important to understand Western medicine and also not be fooled by Western medicine. I'm now going on a rant already and you guys haven't even listened to the podcast. But I mean, come on, if you guys have been listening for a while. You probably understand a little bit more how the drug companies, these insurance companies are jacking up the I mean this is we have an election coming up, and this is a, a huge talking point from from both sides. So anyway, we want to make sure that we are making healthy, responsible choices as individuals and uh, hopefully make our society a better place. So rant over, of course, sponsored by under30experiences.com, travel company for people ages 21 to 35. You probably already know that, but what you definitely don't know is we are going to Greece. Our Greece launch is coming up in just a couple of weeks. And if you want to get on the insider list to learn more about that trip, we're going to be going from Athens down to Santorini, of course, to some amazing islands, one called Paros, which I absolutely loved when I visited last summer. You're going to love this trip. So if you're interested, you can go on over to under30experiences.com and check that out. And while you're there, check out our new Trips on Sale page. We want to get you up and out and traveling, learning about the world. This is a great opportunity, especially when things are on sale. I'm done. Sit back, relax, listen to this episode. Thank you guys so much. Hello everyone, and welcome. I'm your host, Matt Wilson, and today I'm here with our very special guest, Dr. Ann Shippey. Dr. Shippy is a functional medicine expert. She's board certified in internal medicine and also certified in functional medicine. I'm really excited to talk to her today. Of course, uh, she is using a lot of cutting edge science, and innovative testing, things to do with genetics and trying to help people address the root causes of their health issues and not just treat the symptoms of an illness, which is one of, in my opinion, the major problems with our healthcare system today. But you'll also be interested to know that she was a former IBM engineer, and she is going to help us really dive into where toxicity is seeping into our lives. So without further ado, Dr. Shibby, welcome. Thanks for for having me. You're very welcome. (laughs) I was excited to hear that you are a former IBM engineer and, well, you are doing something totally different, but yet the way that you're approaching problems and challenges is probably, you probably have a different way of thinking from that type of background. So I'd love to hear how you made the transition from engineering to medicine.
1: Thanks for asking me that. Yeah, I really love being a chemical engineer and IBM was such a great company to work for. And I really thought I was going to be there until I retired. But about uh, nine, 10 years in, I went on vacation and I came back and I was never the same. I had picked up something that really caused a lot of gastrointestinal distress. And none of the doctors could really help me get back to where I was. I went <laughs> through so many different tests and um, tried so many different medications and nothing really made me better. So I had to start uh, taking it into my own hands to figure out how to get well, because I, I just knew innately that if I, if I figured out what happened and you know, got my body back into balance. I could heal. I got so thin and looked so sick that people told me later that I worked with it. They thought I was dying. So it was, it was, you know, kind of scary there. Um, And it was before the internet was (laughs) very helpful. Um, Maybe that was a good thing. (laughs) (laughs) So I just started trying different ways of eating. I read a lot of different books, spent a lot of time in bookstores and libraries. I uh, tried a lot of different types of approaches. So I saw a naturopath and I saw a nutritionist and an acupuncturist and herbalist. And I just took the bits and pieces from each of those places and just tried different things until my body was well again. And I got so inspired that, oh my gosh, need to do medicine differently. Like I want to be able to help people to do that, like really figure out how to get their bodies back to where they're healthy again. And I woke up one morning and decided to go to medical school. Wow. And fortunately, fortunately, I had all the prerequisites except for biology. I'd never taken a biology class in college, even though I had a, you know, an undergrad degree in chemical engineering and a master's degree in manufacturing systems engineering. So I just had to to go back and relearn, you know, uh, get it fresh for the chemistry, organic chemistry and the physics, and then take a couple biology classes to take the MCAT. And then just everything just fell into place. And very quickly, I was starting med school.
0: Wow. So you mentioned systems and systems engineering. And, and I'm sure that you think in systems and that the body has many, many, many different systems within it, but it all functions together as its own system. And we're part of a larger system, right? Yes. (laughs) But people don't think like that. You know, you get a cut or an infection and well, you want to dab some triple antibiotic on the wound and then hopefully it will go away. But there's a lot more to the human body. So could you talk a little bit about how you look at the system?
1: Yes. And one of the things that I'm so excited about is the field of epigenetics. So that's the field of how we can influence what our genes do based on so many different things. So just even a thought like you have your cut and you think, oh, my God, I'm going to die versus like, oh, that's going to get better. It's my body can handle that. It's a totally different gene expression (laughs) between those two things. And then it's looking at how environmental toxins change our our gene expression, how healthy our microbiome is, the good bacteria, viruses, um, yeast, parasites, all of that influence what's going on. So there are so many different aspects of the different systems in the body that all are communicating with each other all the time and influencing then what our genes do and how you know, what the trajectory of our health looks like. It's really fun for me. I'm such a geek. <laughs> I could, one of my favorite things to do on Saturday mornings is to read Science Daily or go on PubMed and <laughs> look at the latest research because the body is so complex. It's got so much overlap in how the different systems work that it truly is extraordinary when you get enough of the pieces of the puzzle on what's gone off but then once you start nudging it in the right direction, it has such a tremendous capacity to heal. And I really feel like several times in my life where my health has gone off the rails that um, I've gotten to experience that big shift and oops, are you going, (laughs) are you heading off the planet (laughs) or are you, you know, going to be around for a long time?
0: That's great. When you're talking to, because you actually see, Patience, which is is very important, of course, people can read on PubMed about what this or that is supposed to do, but I always like to speak with people who are in the field and actually practicing this stuff and seeing the results and in our let's say American culture, we can specifically pinpoint the u s but in Western culture in general, if you get sick or you do have a cut or whatever. You really want to go to the doctor, and you want them to name it and blame it. That you know you need a, you need the doctor to tell you what is going on right now with my body, and then you need a solution. Which usually you end up down the street at the pharmacy with a prescription. But as you said, your body has an innate ability to heal itself. So how do you balance the expectations of people coming to your office thinking that they are dying, and you're saying no, wait. You need your body to actually fight this off and become resilient. So how do you how do you set those expectations for people?
1: Well, first of all, my staff, I have one person in particular that really spends time talking with the, each prospective new patient to make sure that they know what they're getting into when they come to see me. So they have quite a conversation about how willing they are to do the detailed testing that often isn't covered by insurance, to change their diet, to take supplements, to make the lifestyle changes, uh, just to have that willingness and that perspective, because it doesn't make sense for people to spend their time and money and to take up my new patient slot if if they're not gonna allow me to help them. So we, sure. we set that expectation right up front, but a lot of times, you know people are so hungry to hear that like they are scared about how their bodies are letting them down and they they feel like something is really wrong and just even starting to hear that from from that you know those first phone calls about coming to see me as a patient it's like oh okay there might be some answers and and maybe i can really trust my body and help it to to know to perform better and to, to get my body back. Like that's, that hope and that belief in their bodies is so, so important to start to start up front and start better. And I feel so grateful that I just innately knew that. Like I, somehow I just had that trust in my body from the beginning, um, even multiple times around where, <laughs> where it's been on the edge, yeah.
0: Well, and how about, patients because if you go to a functional doctor their path to making you whole and complete and healthy again is going to be much different than the person who just writes your receipt and has to go on a receipt uh, I'm reverse translating from Spanish uh, a <laughs> reset a uh, prescription prescription yeah. there you go sorry uh, So when you write, you know, you're not just writing receipts like wildfire and getting the people out the door. So when you see someone, you have to again, tell them, all right, you might have to take a little more time off work than you think you may afford. And that I think is a huge issue with, again, our society is because people are not taking time for themselves. They need that dose of antibiotics, you know, the z pack the five-day big hitter to flush it out of their system so they can get back to work and be back under the gun and, and probably get themselves in the same situation a couple months down the road. So could you talk a little bit more about how important time to heal is?
1: Yes, time to heal and probably a little bit of time every day mm-hmm. to really support our bodies. Like, with the type of patients that I see now it's you know it can be anything from you know Alzheimer's cognitive decline parkinsons um, autoimmune disorders inflammatory bowel disease and then there are the patients that they just want to do everything possible to stay healthy and to really know where their bodies are but you know I tell them it's a journey we're going on a journey together and you might start to notice some improvement within days or weeks or there may be more pieces of the puzzle that we have to figure out. And it can be months or even a year sometimes, especially with the, with the patients who are, you know have had more accumulation of, of illness in their bodies. So that patience is really important. And then I just wanna come back just to, for a minute because I do really value my MD background. Like I, I was just in the hospital last week with my mom. She had a, a major fall. And I was so grateful for allopathic medicine. You know, it really saved her life. So what I feel like I do with my patients is when we need the medications, when we need the MRIs, the procedures, we utilize that allopathic background, but we don't use it for Band-Aids. If you're having headaches, we need to figure out why. If you're having stomach pain, we need to figure out why and, and help it to get better. Because those are really the alarm bells or the thermometer that let us know that things are out of balance. If you've got a skin rash, don't ignore it. We need to be addressing the underlying cause so that it doesn't snowball.
0: <laughs> sure. And when I am really sick, you know, in the future, or God forbid, who knows, I have some crazy infection in, in God knows what country. I want those antibiotics to work. I don't want to, you, you know, I don't want to build resistance <laughs> to to that. So I would Much rather dab tea tree oil on my infection and hope it goes away in a week or two. So you've brought us to the root cause. And I know one of the big things I wanted to talk to you about was toxicity. Because unfortunately, we live in a toxic world, whether we like it or not. And uh, well, let me ask you that. Do you believe that we live in a toxic world? It sounds pessimistic on my part.
1: Yeah, I, th- I feel like I'm the eternal optimist. But unfortunately, the evidence in front of me with the testing that I do, where I look at, at people's uh, toxin levels, we are in a toxic world. And there's a lot of things that we cannot control. Like the, now the glyphosate, the main product that's used to grow GMO food is in, even in our rainwater. So it, you know, it's in our water system, the animals that we eat are getting exposed to it in the food and their water. It's just permeated everywhere. So we can make some choices about that, but there's just a certain level that we're all gonna be exposed to. So there are thousands of chemicals and some of them are pretty harmless and some of them are, you know, they damage DNA, they cause cancer, they damage our vital organs. Are hormone disruptors, and uh, a lot of them can actually, you know, cause major issues prenatally and for children's development. So, unfortunately, we don't have a very tight filter in what gets introduced into the world. So, we now know that the amount of glyphosate would cover two thirds of the globe. So we have a tremendous amount of glyphosate that's been distributed, and that's without really very many studies being done to know how harmful it is for babies as they're growing in utero or infants or you know what safe doses are for adults. So we have a lot of work to do to then really look at, okay, well, a little bit of lead, a little bit of mercury, a little bit of chromium six, a little bit of glyphosate, how does that all impact us? So we really all need to be become more aware of the things that we can change, like not handling the um, receipts that were handed almost every day because there's BPA&M, which can disrupt our hormones and not drinking out of aluminum cans and are using aluminum foil because aluminum can be so harmful to our immune systems and our brain and and really trying to eat organic food as, as much as possible so that we're not getting exposed to the hidden uh, chemicals and things that often used to even wash or fumigate uh, things like nuts and lettuce and and that kind of thing.
0: Wow. I I wanted to go back to one thing that you had said, because you hear mind-blowing statistics like glyphosate covers two-thirds of the planet. So you mean that this chemical has now touched literally two-thirds of the planet. And when I'm thinking through this, you're nodding your head yes if you're just listening to the recording. Oh, yes. No, 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 it's okay, <laughs> but I'm, I'm, I'm getting confirmation yes, you from you. Exactly, So right. I'm going to yes. continue with what I'm thinking in my head now, because I, I think of these things sometime and I have to be skeptical. Of course, it's, it's my job as the, the podcast host, but what you said, so two thirds of the world, of course, it's not industrial farmland, but what you said about the water so I'm assuming it rains. Glyphosate is on the plants or on the crops. It evaporates into the clouds. These clouds disperse throughout the atmosphere. It rains in different parts of the world, and now glyphosate is coming down on two thirds of the world. Is that is that how that works?
1: Yeah, that I in don't theory. know if that's- Exactly correct. that it's in, in that much of the rainwater. I think it's more that if you took all the glyphosate that's sprayed, you know, it would cover two thirds of the earth, okay. not just continents, but also the water. Like it's that it's that widespread. And of course, some areas are more concentrated than others. So there's actually a map that you can get from the. It's a government website that shows concentration of glyphosate sprayed. So in our states in the United States that are um, highly agricultural, those have been just saturated, like with tons and tons of the glyphosate. Sure. And then there are other states that there's less agricultural activity there, so they're less. But you know they might have other issues with some of the other types of um, industry or, you know, whatever is happening in that particular state. Sure. And I think the thing that I'm picking up is we probably want to live in the most, the least agricultural and the least um, manufacturing states that we can.
0: Yeah. Well, okay. So I, I shared with you earlier that uh, I split time between Costa Rica and Austin, Texas. I spend more time in Costa Rica, actually, than I than I do in Austin. And, you know, of course, Costa Rica has this very green ecological brand and there's beautiful nature all around. And and I I literally live in the jungle, which is amazing. But of course, it's also a very agriculturally based country and they do a fantastic job marketing how clean and green Costa Rica is. And at first glance, you look around and it, it really is. But the palm oil plantations, right, that are really not far from, you know, a kilometer or two from where I live. I always wonder, sure, I might be in this incredibly dense, you know, secondary forest with primary forest, just not far from, from where I actually live. But I think of the chemicals that are sprayed on that those palm oil plantations. And I'm talking about huge, massive palm oil plantations That the chemicals must blow in the wind or evaporate and get rained on my part of the jungle, wouldn't you say?
1: Yeah, and it could also get into your air. And so you could be breathing it in and it can go through your skin. So, what would be interesting is to find out what chemicals they are using. And then, if we have the test to be able to look for it, we could test and see what the levels are in your body.
0: That's, that's great. And um, I will ask for people who don't live in the jungle, what they can do when they are in their, probably most of the listeners live in cities or, or in suburban areas like Austin. So I'd love to hear, I'd actually love to hear what you do in Austin to mitigate yourself from toxicity.
1: I love that question. And I think that's, that's really where we all have to be. So we're not running around in a state of fear. I think that's really, really important because once you start learning about all this, and there are some days where I go home and I'm just so discouraged by what I'm seeing and the impact on my patients, but I try to stay proactive and, um, encouraging. So some things that I do is I run an IQ air filter in my office and in my bedroom so that most of the time I'm getting breathing air that has a charcoal filter and a HEPA filter. And then I drink filtered water and not out of plastic. Great. I can use either stainless steel or glass for the filtered water. And then I'm very careful about what I put on my skin A lot of times I'll just use something like coconut oil or avocado oil that's organic. And then I try to eat organic as much as I can. Then I do some things that are beyond that. So I really like to do infrared saunas. I think um, they're extremely helpful of kind of bypassing these detoxification pathways that are already overloaded. I love hyperbarics. There's some uh, more recent research that's out on how hyperbarics really help our bodies to detoxify. And then I've got a a toxin clear bath that is a clay and herbal bath that I can tell a huge difference when I'm doing that regularly. Uh, That's on my website. And then I take supplements that I know support the very comprehensive systems (laughs) you're talking about that... Are involved in helping to detoxify. So a couple of my favorites are uh, liposomal glutathione, and then there's a substance called Toxin Clear that has a lot of different binders that'll grab different toxins in really in the gut and really make sure that they're carried out. So it sounds when I talk about all that, it sounds overwhelming. It's like, oh my God, how do you do all that? But when you do, you know, start to incorporate one thing at a time, and um, it becomes a lifestyle. <laughs> I was kind of laughing at myself. No,
0: I'm just as crazy as you are. Don't (laughs) worry. There's two of us here.
1: Like how long it takes to get out the door in the morning. I can't do it pretty fast or to get ready for bed at night. And then, you know, I have to set aside time every week for things like the bath or the sauna or the hyperbaric. But then I'll multitask a little bit and I'll do my meditations or something like that. <laughs> during that time so
0: yeah and once it becomes part of your life and and as you said one thing at a time you're just you know it might seem overwhelming at first if you're trying to switch let's say to a non-toxic deodorant right and then there's a massive list and where should i go what should i do but once you start going with the non-toxic one it's not it takes no extra energy just to buy your deodorant at whole foods for example Okay, so for anybody who is overwhelmed, I would say, let's not worry, but I would like to dive a little bit deeper into each one of these things that you recommended because people also think, okay, I need an air filter. Well, you mentioned the IQ air filter that was both HEPA and charcoal filtered. Now, I have a couple HEPA filters that I run, but is IQ the brand for everybody? I don't think mine has charcoal
1: yeah, that's the one that I you, just happen to use because it does both. So the charcoal is really good at getting out the VOCs, and then the HEPA is more getting the particles out and some of the chemicals.
0: Okay, and can you define VOCs for everybody?
1: Yes, volatile organic compounds. So it's the things that you know outgas a little bit, even with using as clean chemical cleaners as we can. The the furniture, the paint, carpeting, just all the things that we have in our homes, as well as it can um, come in from the outdoor air uh, with air pollution.
0: Okay. Don't let me forget to come back to off-gassing because I want to talk about mattresses and carpets and furniture and new cars in a second, but I will try to stay on track. Is that okay?
1: I love it. Yes. All
0: right. So then you said water filter. Now, People can just go to Walmart and buy a cheap water filter and think that, you know, it's made of plastic and people think that they're doing themselves a big, huge favor. Now, you don't have to maybe spend the $500 that I did on a reverse osmosis filter and then I remineralize it with trace minerals. But what would you suggest for somebody who's just trying to do better?
1: Probably even the little, some of the little handheld filters are still or, you know, countertop filters are better than nothing. Okay. But definitely, if you can, at least put one of those uh, filters for the drinking water uh, with the reverse osmosis under your kitchen sink. You know, every incremental step is good. Like, just do what you can afford and what you can do in this moment. The best thing to do is to have a whole house filter, you, but you can spend thousands of dollars to get a good one where you have the reverse osmosis and the charcoal and the UV filter and the remineralization. The problem with it is that it does waste a lot of water too. So you get into all those ethical things. You know, I have a lot of people that use, you know, try to use rainwater or well water. If you're going to do that, you've got to. You've got to invest in the really good filters, especially when you hear things like the rainwater has glyphosate in it. There are thousands of sure. chemicals and pesticides that can be in your water that are very expensive to test for. So I think you almost have to assume that they're there unless you're on a mountaintop somewhere and really clean your water because that, when you're bathing, you absorb it through your skin and you know putting it in your food and, and drinking the water it can really accumulate to quite a large exposure,
0: sure. I can't remember the name of the one that I have, but it's a tabletop reverse osmosis filter, a countertop, rather. And so you can actually take the backwash or like the dirty water. so so for anybody listening, Who wants to know how the reverse osmosis works? Basically, it runs it through a bunch of filters. It keeps the good water. And then there's some water that you, most people probably just pour down the drain, or that's what I did for forever. And then I realized I can wash my dishes with this at least, right? I can do, I can, there, I try to do some tasks that I don't need perfectly clean water for with that water.
1: Or even watering your plants or your yeah. grass. Like, why not just dump it outside? Exactly.
0: Yeah, no, it, exactly. And, oh, and the one other thing I was going to mention, I don't have a whole house filter, but in my shower heads, I have two charcoal filters. Well, I have two showers, so that's one on each uh, from Dr. McCola, And so the water feels better. Your skin feels better.
1: You can tell a difference in your hair, right? Yeah. Like your hair... Feels cleaner.
0: And when I when I talk to people, I, I find myself in many conversations with people who don't get it or just think that I'm crazy. But you know, just something like a HEPA filter. I told somebody with allergies, hey, maybe, you know, especially in Austin, it's brutal. Hey, try a HEPA filter. And he said, Well, my allergies got a little bit better, but you know what else? My dog doesn't smell. I don't smell my dog all the time. And it was kind of <laughs> that light bulb that went off. I was like, Yes, okay, you're you're getting it, right? Or this whole water thing that we're talking about. People probably just want to drink the tap water, but it actually tastes better. You're not tasting chlorine, you know?
1: It really does. And again, I know it's overwhelming to talk about all of these things all at once. So, just pick one thing. And the cleanse program that we're launching in about 6 weeks in mid-September we're going to like take people through you know here's what we can do with our food and here's what you can do with you know each step of the way with the house and the water and and then the supplements to really do an intensive detoxification i think there are a lot of uh, detox programs out there that make you think that in a week or in a month you can really have a dramatic impact but it it takes these sustained lifestyle changes and really keeping up with the day-to-day little exposures to make the true change in the trajectory of your health.
0: No, that that's great. And actually, I have one other. I've always been dying to ask someone about this skeptical question. that I've always heard that the birth control pill is in our drinking water and that men are now... Consuming this uh, estradiol, the synthetic form of estrogen that's in the pill, and I just can't quite believe it, but it must be true. Do you think it really harms the human body from this from this drinking water?
1: you know, I think that we do have an issue, and that if you have leftover medications, definitely don't add to the problem of other than the fact that we have a lot of water systems that they have the you know, the sewer water that ends up mixing in with the clean water. Um, I do think it's an issue in some areas. And I do think that it's in such, it is in small amounts, but then, you know, you get a little bit of a blood pressure medicine, you get a little bit of a statin, you know, cholesterol medication, you get a little bit of a birth control or testosterone. Lots of men are on testosterone now, right? So we don't know what that soup is. And then every city has their different levels of water filtration. And I think the main issue is really that nobody's required to check those things. Sure. There's such a limited amount of testing, even like there's such a big algal bloom problem going on in any areas of the country that have lakes or are on the ocean. There's a lot of algal bloom issues that are creating a lot of toxicity. And even very few of those have to be monitored. Um, the, very few of the toxins that the algae makes are checked. Wow. Uh, so I think some of what really needs to happen is that we need different regulations and different expectations so that when we do like get a water report from our, <laughs> from like for us, right, from our Austin utility, that we really do know what's in the water And then so many things that even are tested, we don't know what the safe limits are. And what's safe for me might not be safe for you. So we really need to be doing more research to be able to answer these questions. And a lot of people just aren't aware. They think we have all this research and data, and we really don't. We don't have the right mechanisms in place to protect us. And sometimes even the the chemicals that are used, like, uh, were you in town when we had the muscle the green mussel outbreak in Austin and water
0: about a year ago.
1: Yes. The water was so disgusting. It smelled horrible. And like, you could not, you could hardly even take a shower. Right. But the chemicals that they had to use to get that muscle issue under control, like they have to use a lot of chemicals in water in the treatment of our water systems. So this is a whole nother area that really we need better research and controls.
0: Wow. Well, I, I do want to ask you about testing here. Also, in a I, I feel like I could talk to you all day, but I want to. I want to get real specifics for people. You mentioned you mentioned the sauna. Now, of course, anything, as you said, anything is going to be better than nothing. So you need a sauna. Go out in in uh, July in a hot Texas day and go sweat. Right. So that's that would be a great first step. But you were talking about infrared which is not the same as being inside of a hot little box filled with steam or or whatever, which is also probably pretty good for detox. But could you explain the infrared therapy to everyone? Yes.
1: So I definitely agree that sweating is helpful. Like we know that sweating, some of the, it's part of how our body can get rid of some toxins So just exercise, just being out in the heat, those two things, I see a difference with my patients that we're working on helping them to detoxify. The um, steam sauna don't do because you can, I think the control of the microorganisms in the steam is really challenging.
0: Oh, interesting.
1: Like the the bacteria and mold growth in a steam sauna is too risky. So don't don't get in those, my opinion.
0: Okay. That's the steams, not to cut you off, but that's the steam sauna that you walk in and you can't see your hand in the face. In front of your exactly. face. Exactly. Okay. Now there's a dry sauna where it's like wood inside. Yeah. Okay. Dry sauna. You're you're good with dry sauna.
1: And definitely dry sauna. Those are so much more accessible than the infrared. So if you have an opportunity, if you have one of those, definitely get in. And then the infrared saunas. There are several different types of infrared. I think all of those are a step above the other forms of sweating. the The benefits are that you can sweat at a lower temperature because the infrared is penetrating into the tissues. So you don't, yeah, you don't have to get as hot and I think that's just gentler and easier on the body. And then when it penetrates into the tissues, that's a lot of where the toxins are. So it can mobilize more. So that being said, when we go to that degree of sweating, if you're not used to it, you have to go and, or if you're sick, you've got to go really carefully. So I'll, i I'm so careful to tell patients this now. Like, if you're going to go get in a sauna or start sweating, uh, really listen to your body. You've got to stay hydrated. You will also sweat out some of your minerals, so you've got to make sure you're taking minerals. And if you, even if you're paid for a 30-minute, 40-minute sauna, and you're only five minutes in and you get the instinct that to get out, you are done. If you push your body past the point. Of what it is able to detoxify at that moment, you can actually do more harm than good. So, so really listen to your body and, and go slow, um, gradually increase your time in the saunas and the amount of sweating that you do. But it is a huge tool to stay ahead of the game with all these little day-to-day exposures that we have.
0: Okay, great. And recently I had heard that you should only stay 20 minutes in the infrared sauna in the first place or after these lights can start creating uh, reactive oxygen species in, in your body? I don't know if you had heard that or seen any research on it.
1: I think that's such an individual question. So mm. maybe on average, 20 minutes is good, but there are going to be some people that don't redox as well that you know, maybe a little less. But I really think Uh, that our bodies kind of let us know when we're done. Okay. So just don't don't push through. Just stop when your body's like, okay, had enough, get out. Um, And then other people are really, really good at taking those reactive oxygen species and converting them. So they don't really have to worry much at all. It's very dependent on genetics.
0: Okay. Interesting. Interesting. All right. So you said genetics i think we've di- we've taken a deep dive on a lot of those things and even even you mentioned supplementation like glutathione for example so i got my genetics tested and i found out that i have this mtfhr gene how do i say that there's something uh-huh. wrong with a it snip. mutation right, so you've
1: yeah got- <laughs> You've got an MTHFR, which is part of our methylation process. And you've got a, I, I, it's a SNP, S-N-P-A, or I describe it as a little glitch. It just means that that particular gene isn't as uh, productive as the average gene for that okay. particular step of methylation.
0: So I try to take glutathione for detoxification purposes to flush this stuff out of my body through this. Special pathway, but that's something that I learned only because I did a DNA test. Otherwise, you know, as I also understand, you can take glutathione and not do, some people don't do so well on it. So I I was wondering what type of tests would you recommend, of course, for people just starting out, because there's only so much time and money that people have uh, to address these things.
1: Yeah. So most local labs can do an MTHFR gene check. Now it's um, a little hit or miss on whether it can be done through the labs, but definitely it's an add-on that I'll do for like 40 bucks. The Some of the labs can charge a lot more than that, but for $40, we can do two of the MTHFR genes with another lab that I do. But you can also do 23andMe, um, if you have your 23andMe data, which they're kind of limited on what they can actually report to you, although they're adding more week by week, month by month, they're having to be very careful in how they present data to people so that they don't get frightened and that they have the right information that they need. But they do still give you some raw data that then you can run through another website that'll give you a report. MTHFR support is one. Genetic Genie is another. There are several that you pay like $30 to $40, and it'll give you some information, then you usually need some help to interpret it. So there are a lot of ways now to get genetic information. There's a lot of issues around that that people are concerned about with privacy and Mm -hmm. how good the testing is and all that kind of thing. But definitely for MTHFR, a lot of those are are good enough to know. So a lot of people with the NTHFR, they need to take a special form of folic acid because their body doesn't take regular folic acid and convert it to the methylated form very well. So it's helpful to take 5-methyltetrahydrofolate.
0: Okay, I'm taking it.
1: (laughs) And then usually some B6 also helps get that conversion on down to glutathione a little bit better and make sure you have adequate amounts of B12 as well. So there's so much more that we can do now um, rather than just thinking, oh, okay, I'm stuck with these genes. We can easily find workarounds that help you to, to work better. And then with the glutathione, I really like the liposomal form because then when you take it, it's not getting digested and then your body has to reassemble it, it just goes right into your bloodstream in the form that you need it in. But I do recommend starting slow with the dosing and making sure that you don't detox too quickly. So start with very low doses, like a quarter to an eighth of a dose on the bottle, and then uh, gradually increase it over days, weeks, months, depending on how your body responds. But the glutathione can be so helpful for heavy metals and toxic mold exposures and a lot of the, the chemicals that we're exposed to, even if you don't have some of these SNPs because your your glutathione levels can get depleted because it's just overworking. And then if you've had a big exposure someplace, then it can actually impact your capacity to produce glutathione that way.
0: Wow. Okay. And how important do you feel genetic testing is, I mean, of of course you have to when you see somebody it's all individualized on what you think that they might need. But if we're talking about a someone who is relatively healthy and they just want to perform better or just improve their health and, and learn more about their body, would you suggest genetic testing, or would you have them go in for a blood panel or some other type of testing?
1: Okay. Remember, you're talking to a chemical engineer.
0: (laughs) Yes, please. Where would you start?
1: So I I love data. And it's so like in in my clinic, I get to really, out of my many, many tests that I can do, I can prioritize for each person. So if we think about in general, oh my gosh, that's so hard. (laughs) I do think we're touching on some really important ones. Like if you can look at your methylation genes, um, and now there are some companies that will do like a whole methylation panel, more than just the NTHFR, for around two or $300. And, and then also give really great reports along with that that are very specific on, based on these particular SNPs, what seems to help the most. And then looking at detoxification genes, I think are extremely helpful. And I'm, my dream is that someday we'll have these kinds of tests maybe even before babies are born or right after they're born, where we can know, like, what can we do for this particular child to make sure that they're in the safest environment for them possible. And then if they do end up needing a medication, help to know which ones need to be avoided and which ones would be most effective. And that that we just have that information for everyone, but from the moment that you're born.
0: That's amazing. Are there any other... Snips that you might look out for. If someone, let's say, someone just decided, forget privacy issues. I just want to know about my body and spend one hundred and ninety nine dollars on a twenty three and me test. And by the way, there are other companies that have better privacy that address privacy concerns, and you keep your data. It doesn't go to a bank. That's for the better of science. But that aside, I did twenty three and me before I considered a. The privacy issues behind it, and I have my data now. And as you said, you can put these into different websites. You said Genetic Genie. There's one I think Prometheus that you can plug it into, and they spit you out some really interesting reports. What might you tell somebody to look out for? You said MTFHR. FHR. Uh, what? Yeah. What other SNPs maybe?
1: And then the detoxification genes, I think, are that's. Me, that's one of the biggest issues that we're facing in our world today is can your body zip the toxins out? So, looking at where your genetic glitches may be and then helping to compensate for those is huge. You know, we can also look for things like, you know, gluten sensitivity and celiac genes. So, don't wait till you get the disease, cut the gluten out now rather than, you know, waiting till you manifest with digestive issues or lymphoma or autoimmune disorders that are associated with those genetics. Oh gosh, in my, in my research, I'm going to be giving a TED talk in September on epigenetics and how we can help our genes to behave. So in that, uh, delving through (laughs) a lot of the epigenetic studies, one of the studies looked at, um, APOE4 genes. So that's, you know, one of the increased risks for Alzheimer's, right? Sure. There were studies that showed that changes in the gene expression from the APOE4 increased the risk for significant issues for concussions. So then one of my questions from that is, if you know you have an APOE4 gene or your child does, do you want to guide them more towards tennis than football or soccer?
0: Wow. That's very interesting. Well, I have one APOE4 My grandfather actually just passed away a week ago from Alzheimer's. And yeah, he he was 92. He lived a great life. But, you know, the last four years he had to be ripped away from his family and, and put in a home and he was fit as anything. And the issue was that he could just escape and just run away. And he and he would, you know, my grandmother couldn't handle them anymore. And even if we had nurses, it, you know, it was kind of, yeah, it was a really sad situation. But of course, my my whole family after seeing this has been quite obsessed with their own brain health. But yeah, that's a huge one. And do you think that, you know, this is a disease, of course, that's going to affect so many people listening if it hasn't already affected them in, in some way? What might you tell people for Alzheimer's prevention what they might be able to do?
1: Yeah. So there's a, a really good book that uh, came out by uh, Dale Bredesen, I think about two years ago, maybe three years ago, called The End of Alzheimer's. And so the, he you know, explains things like the APOE4, like there are some genetic predispositions and there are definitely things that we can do about it But then Alzheimer's can also be impacted by environmental toxins, by infections, by nutritional deficiencies, by things like gluten sensitivity. So, you know, blood sugar issues, especially going through what you saw your grandfather go through, that really motivates you differently, right? So you kind of want to be looking at each one of those aspects of what can be contributing to your brain health and you know, really feeding your brain with the foods that are um, most helpful and the supplements that are most helpful, really helping your body to detoxify, keeping your microbiome healthy. So it's very comprehensive in, in what we can be doing. You know, there are certain supplements. Again, we've got a little thing on the website about brain health. They're my favorite things that I see help people that, I, I can't tell you the number of th- people that have come in in their 30s and 40s and say, I've got brain fog. I, I just, like, I don't feel like I'm making decisions as well. I can't remember as well. It's really becoming an epidemic. And so we put together that my favorite things that really help to build healthy brains back or to help to keep your brain healthy. So it's things like phosphatidylcholine, especially from CoQ10, um, that feed the mitochondria but then we also just really want to be keeping inflammation low in our body. What we eat really matters. So lots of vegetables that help us to detoxify and control inflammation are so, so critical. And, you know, you don't have to be perfect every minute, but you can do so much good by paying attention to it every day.
0: I, I really hope that that is the truth. I will, I will believe you. I am also an optimist. I want to ask you one one more question and it's a, it's a personal one but one that as I think a lot of listeners can understand when they're trying to talk to people about hey you know look I went through my phase where I just lived in the jungle of Costa Rica the way that I wanted to live and everybody else could you know if you want to make fun of me for my weird habits you can if not that's cool too but I find myself talking to people who just don't get it sometimes. And it can be very frustrating in very frustrating situations. And I'll give you this one example. So you bring up this book, Dale Bredesen and the End of Alzheimer's, and he has you know, like 30 different things that you can do. He calls them your holes in the roof. And you know you want to plug each one of these, these holes. And these are all these little things that you can do to hopefully present this Disease, and so on the other side of my family, my dad has a, a terrible form of dementia himself, called progressive supranuclear policy, PSP. No, it's, it's you know it's an unfortunate part of of life, I guess. So I'm at Columbia University at this you know world renowned hospital with my dad. And here I am talking to his doctor, who is supposed to be the world's expert in this. And this is fairly similar from what I understand to, to Alzheimer's, or at least it's another form of, of dementia. And so I ask the world, basically the world's expert on this disease, about what he thinks of Dale Bredesen and you know the 30 things that you can do to hopefully prevent. And he looks at me and he's like, you know, kid, I can't recommend that as medical advice. And he just went on with what he was doing. And I was like, really, that's all you could do? I know he's not a functional doc, but how do you talk to people who don't see both sides of it like you do?
1: Yeah, I mean, I try to find out where they are, like what piece they can talk about. Like, it's so amazing how you know 20 30 years ago even cardiologists didn't they didn't think exercise was that
0: important right
1: and now it's like you know a standard conversation so we have these big paradigm shifts that happen in medicine and i think we're coming up against one within the next few years so functional medicine when i started about 14 years ago had gone through another health crisis and i'm like oh my god i got to figure out my autoimmune disorders and it was just when functional medicine was coming on the map and it was like 30 40 people in a little hotel conference room in Gig Harbor Washington it was and then our annual conference was like 300 500 people and now it's thousands and now they have extensive course you know there was just one course and now there's many modules that you could go in depth in each one of these systems So there's this movement that's happening where doctors are searching for other ways to help their patients. The the patients themselves are, you know, we have the internet to be able to go search on things and spend hours and hours. So I think we're at the lower part of the exponential curve, but the doctors like your father's doctor that aren't getting on board and really delving into the biochemistry and the physiology and digging through the research to find the how these these things are connecting, and any problem that somebody's having, there are there's a cause, and it may be complex or it may be simple. But we have to be thinking that way. Like we we can no longer just say, "Oh, you've got a headache," you know, "you've got these terrible migraine headaches," and here's a band aid, because even you know, back then there's something was out of balance in the body. I see this over and over again. When I go through people's histories, there were little warning signs of things that were happening. And we, we have to start doing medicine differently. I think one of the problems that we have, <laughs> you got me all fired up. Sorry. No,
0: please. Is,
1: um, gosh, I can't believe I'm saying this in public. The way that we select doctors is a problem. We select doctors a lot of the times on based on who is good at memorizing and regurgitating information. I'm gonna make enemies here, but we don't select doctors based on how well can they think and problem solve. Sure. And I just bumped up against this with my mom's hospitalization because of course she her body is sensitive like mine, and she started having angioedema from some medicine or something she, she was being given. So her, you know, here she is, you know, really, really sick. And we add that problem on top of it where we're going to lose our airway if we don't figure this out. And even though her doctors were very good at doing surgery and managing multiple broken bones and keeping her hydrated and those kinds of things, when we ran up into that, like, Oh my gosh, we've got to, we've got to think this through and problem solve it. That's not their thing. They're very good at running these protocols, solving problems that they've solved before. So part of what needs to happen is that we need to look for people that enjoy puzzles and problem solving. And so I think engineers, a lot of times are actually make good doctors because they like, I'm not very good at memorizing stuff. I, I learn kinesthetically, like, you know, show me a, how to solve a math problem and give me more problems that I can play with and figure it out or, I loved organic chemistry because you learned a principle and then you got to see different ways of (laughs) making it work. We need people that enjoy that, that you get a lot of different data and then you use that to set a hypothesis and then solve the problem. So like with your dad, something's causing this process to occur and he needs somebody who's willing to help you guys figure out why and then is there a way to halt it or correct it?
0: Yeah, it is. It is really crazy. Well, I wanted to say thank you to you for dispelling so many of there's so many myths out there and but also pushing forward what needs to be pushed into the public forefront and doing interviews like this really helps and showing up to those little rooms that were 30 people and now it's over a thousand and disseminating this information and the spread of ideas is is so important. I'll, I'll tell you one last thing and then I know I need to, to let you go. Hopefully we'll get to meet in person in, in Austin.
1: Yes, let me know when you're in Austin.
0: Yeah, actually, so somebody, former podcast guest, someone who i, I Really love uh, from Austin, Dr. Lindsay Berkson. I'm not sure if you know her yet. I know,
1: Lindsay. So
0: she mentioned to me, and I just connect this in my own head. We weren't discussing my father's health. But as you know, in Austin, the seasonal allergies are so tough. And she told me that antihistamines can cause dementia, and my dad is somebody who has struggled with horrible seasonal allergies. And if I had to estimate, he's probably been on some type of Claritin or Zyrtec or who knows what for 30 years. I mean, I, and I'm, I know that it's not just one root cause, right? So not to spill all my about my dad's health here, but this is just a perfect example, I think, that people can can learn from. But, you know, he also loved cheap red wine. And that can also really damage Increase your. Yeah, you could, can- exactly. <laughs> so it
1: makes your allergies worse.
0: <laughs> but of course, yes. not everybody can know these things, I guess. But they should, they could.
1: Right. That's a perfect example of even allergies, like that can be an early warning sign that something's out of balance and we need to help the person get their body into balance so that they're not so reactive. So there's genetic predispositions for sure. But then when we look at, well, you know, what can we do with the microbiome and decreasing inflammation in other ways? I used to be miserable all the time with allergies. And now if I have a flare up, I know something that that there's something I need to pay attention to. There's either something triggering it or something's off in my microbiome or, you know, I work on it so that I am not having issues. So it's, it really is like, do the work early so that you don't end up with something later.
0: I think that is fantastic advice. Do, do the work early so you don't end up with something later. I, I think that's a great place to end. And you've given people a lot of homework here, things that they can apply to their life immediately. I wanted to mention that you have two books on Amazon, The Mold Toxicity Workbook, where you can assess your environment and create a recovery plan. And Shippy Paleo Essentials, A Medical Blueprint, for health, I strongly suggest people go and check that out. But if people want to reach out to you, Dr. Shippey, or, or follow you on social media, where's the best place to find out more? So our
1: website is annshippeymd.com. Very easy. And then same thing for um, Instagram and Facebook. And we are doing so much, my team and I, to get a lot of these tips and tools out every day. So if you just do that one step each day in a year, you can make a tremendous difference.
0: Great, and you have a a detox, uh, a cleanse coming out in September?
1: We have a cleanse coming out. So yes, if you sign up for my newsletter, we'll be taking a smaller group of people and um, I'll be doing um, once or twice a week where we can do a Q and A and really get individual questions answered.
0: Great. Well, that sounds good. I will link these things up in the show notes for people. and Dr. Shippy, thank you so much for for being on today. I really appreciate it.
1: Thanks for having me. That was really fun.